Orpheus charms his way past the boatman Karen and across the river Styx. But another terrifying obstacle awaits him on the other side. Cerberus, the three-headed guard dog of Hades. With trembling fingers, Orpheus strums his lyre. Cerberus is spellbound, but his true test is inside the gates. Hades himself. Hades is so moved by the music, he decides to give Orpheus a chance to win his wife's freedom. On one condition, Orpheus has to walk out of Hades and trust that Eurydice is following behind him. But if he looks back to make sure, he will lose her forever. As Orpheus and Eurydice are making their way to the world above, Orpheus begins to doubt. And as he gets closer and closer and closer to the world above, this doubt grows and grows and grows in him. And eventually, just as they are about to break through to the surface, he can't take it anymore, and he turns around and he sees Eurydice. And when he does and catches eyes with her, she instantly gets dragged back down into the underworld. Hades has proven once again that his power over the dead is absolute. For thousands of years, this Greek vision of the afterlife endured. But in the first few centuries A.D., a new set of ideas revolutionized the way the ancient world looked at death. The god Hades was about to come face to face with a powerful new force. Jesus Christ. Christian tradition tells of an epic battle between the old order and the new. A final clash of the gods. At the center of the showdown stands Hades. And Christ has come to collect his souls. But what will become of the master of the dead in this new order? The final moments of Hades are described in the Bible's book of Revelation. When Christ returns for the last judgment, he will cast the warden of death into a lake of fire. So there is the tradition, the Greek myth of uh, what happened with Hades and how people saw him, how people were scared of him. And as with every Greek uh, drama, every Greek tragedy, there's never a happy ending. If you ever read these Greek dramas, it's always a sad, depressing ending because mortals are not worthy of happiness. So Orpheus and Eurydice almost make it out, but the moral of the story for all of the Greeks and all of the Romans is this. No one defeats death. No one. And if you were to ask someone in the Greek-Roman culture, who is the gate to the underworld? They would say, it's Hades. Who is the doorway to eternity? It's Hades. And into this world, Jesus Christ will come in and say, you have all these myths about the afterlife, all these myths about the gate and the doorway to eternity. But I want to tell you that no one gets past Hades because he is the gate that locks you in. But I have come to be a gate 
But I am not the gate that locks you in. I am the gate that leads you out. And he says, and I will predict in advance that what you heard about in myth, I will do in reality. I will show a way that you can break free from not only the myths of the past, but the reality that eternity is a mystery. I can lead you out. In fact, as we've looked at the different Greek gods, a quick reminder of who's who. Hades, brother up at the top. So there's Hades, his brother Zeus, and his uh, uh, sister Demeter. Hades was also known as Pluto. That was his Roman name. And he was the gate. He was the doorway to the underworld. Now, keep in mind, his other name is Pluto because there were two places that they found so far, archaeologically, that were named after being gateways to go down to the underworld. One is in Turkey. I got a chance to visit it recently, a couple months ago, and it's called the Plutonium. It's here on the left-hand side. It was a natural spring that water came out of the spring at 120-plus degrees. Extremely hot, smelled of sulfur. And they said, this is the gate to the underworld. That's how you get to Hades' place. They built a temple above it, but because they were so terrified of Hades, they built it to a different god. But it was a reminder that this was a portal to the underworld. Now, Jesus comes face to face with the gate of Hades in Jerusalem. Because over in Israel, there's another gate of Hades in a place called Caesarea Philippi. In Caesarea Philippi, Jesus takes his disciples one day. And as they arrive... Here's what it looked like during that time. I got a chance to visit this as well. Just to the right of the arrow, you see some folks dancing around. That is where they worshipped Pan. But right behind the temple where the yellow arrow is, is a giant cave, which went to this, this dynamic pit. They said they lowered down ropes and it went you know, beyond, they couldn't even measure the bottom of it. So they said that was the gates of Hades. That was the gate to the underworld. So Jesus comes to the place that the Greek Roman myth was that this is the gates of Hades. And Jesus turns to his disciples and say, who do you think I am? Some say John the Baptist. Some say, I don't know. And Peter says, I think you are the son of God. I think you are the sent one, the Messiah. I think you are God in the flesh. And Jesus says at this location, I say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, on this proclamation that I am God, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He's saying a clash is coming. A battle is coming. And I am going to take on the thing you're scared of the most. I'm going to take on the thing that society is scared of the most. Everyone has to face the Grim Reaper. But what they would have said is everyone has to face the gates of Hades. And I am going to prevail against it. This was shocking. No one can prevail. No one beats him. No one overcomes him. And here we see the clash of two gates, two heroes, and two judges. I'll start by looking at the gates. A quick reminder of what we saw in the video. Jesus comes into an area and says, if you trust in me to be your gate, it won't be based on myth. It'll be based on facts. Where the Greek myths were based on mythology and philosophy, Christianity is based on history. You say, well, I don't know if I believe that. Well, here's the good news. If something's based on history, you can check it out. Jesus either lived or he didn't. He either died or he didn't. He either rose from the grave or he didn't. Christianity pounds a stake in the ground and says, this is either factually true or it's worthless. You talk about painting yourself into a corner. But Christianity claims and substantiates itself by saying archaeology and history will back up the claim that Jesus came to be the gate that defeated death once and for all. It's a bold claim. 
Now, keep in mind, if you're a Greek or a Roman, your idea of the underworld is very different. Their gate is a pay-your-own-way gate. So the first thing you do when you die is you have to pay the toll. So you come to the, to the, uh, the ferry boatman, and his name is Charon, and you've got to pay him to make it to the other side, across the river Styx. If you remember listening to some Styx growing up in the 80s and 90s. So you're going across the river Styx, but you've got to pay the, 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 the ferry boatman to get you there. So which is why the Greeks had not only a polis, which was their city, but they'd have a necropolis, necro-dead polis. So here on the right, I got to visit many of these when I was over in Turkey. Huge, gigantic cemeteries that look like cities. Because you spent your whole life preparing to face death. People came into your, your tomb and they prayed for you. They put money on your eyes and in your, in your pants and in your clothes. Because when you got to the underworld, you had to pay your own way to make it across. If not, you got thrown in sticks and you're just sort of floating there in limbo. The Greek version of purgatory might be a good example of it. Now, if you made it across the river sticks that you had to pay for, then you had to face the dog. You had to defeat the dog. Siberian or Siberius. Siberius was a three-headed dog with lion claws and a snake tail. And his job was to let you in, but nobody gets out. And again, this is the whole idea that Hades, he's the gateway, he's the doorway that locks you in, but there's no way out. And the dog helped with that. Then you came and you had to enter the gate. You entered the gate, and unlike other traditions, the myth of the Greeks was that you came, everyone came here. Hades was the lord of the good people and the bad people and the purgatory people. And as you entered the gate, you would either go to Tardis or Elysium. If you remember that great scene from Gladiator at the very beginning, he says, if you find yourself walking in fields of wheat, know that you are dead and you are in Elysium. Remember that? Like, that's a good Russell Crowe, man. I just went to that. That's really good. Father of a murdered wife and a father, uh, husband of a murdered son, and I will have my vengeance. Anyway, so my favorite, my favorite line from that movie. So here's what he's saying. Elysium was their idea of heaven. So when you came before Hades, he controlled where you went. The judges evaluated your life and decide where you went. And he was the gate. He was the way. He was the door. And into that, John writes a letter to those obsessed with these Greek myths and says, no, Jesus came to say, I am the gate and I am the door and I am the one that controls your eternal destiny. So shocking. He says it this way. But the one who enters the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him. The sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Where Hades' gate locks you in, this shepherd gate leads you out. He calls his own by name. He says, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. But the true sheep will not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate, and those who come in through me will be saved or rescued or delivered. This was the ultimate hero, Jesus claiming in advance to be the hero who could beat the unbeatable, defeat the undefeatable, and unlock the unlockable. This was a bold claim. This was a man's man, a warrior's warrior, because no one would even dare to speak his name, let alone claim to be able to defeat him. And he predicted it in advance. In fact, his disciples were always like, what are you talking about? Three years he'll hang out with his disciples. 
And Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer, he must be killed and raised on the third day. They're always like, no, 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 stop all that crazy talk. No, don't say that. Oh, come on, we're going to be the king, we're going to take the world. No, I'm going to go take on the ultimate king of the underworld. I'm going to defeat death itself. After he dies, he has resurrection appearances. And again, this is the historic facts you can look into. It's either right or it's not. If it's right, it changes everything. If it's wrong, Christianity is powerless because it claims to defeat death. Jesus comes after he's resurrected in a resurrected body that he can still eat food. He can still hug people. The promise of Christianity is that you get a new body in a real place in heaven. Totally different concept than the Greeks, the Gnostics. And he says to his disciples, I want to give you evidence I'm alive. Come, touch He appears to Peter and to the twelve. And one time he appears over 500 eyewitnesses at once to make sure there's plenty of collaborating evidence that he is alive. And he says this after it. He says, I am he who lives. I was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. For I have the keys to Hades and death. I didn't just defeat him. I grabbed his keys and came back. And in the future... Though I've taken his keys now, I will eventually destroy him forever because death and Hades will be cast off into a lake of fire. I'm going to destroy all that fear, all that bad stuff. I'm going to burn up everything that's bad and has caused so much pain in life. That's his promise. So this was the idea that Jesus claimed he could and did come into history, defeat death, and showed us a way out. This reminds me a little bit of an experiment they did in 1960. They did an experiment on called conditioned hopelessness. The psychologists involved put dogs into a cage with low voltage. And there was a doorway they could jump out of. So the dog would be in a cage. They'd turn up the low voltage. They'd feel the electricity and they'd immediately jump out. Well, then they had another group that they put into a cage with no door. They turned the, the low volume electricity on. It was stinging and the dog would bark. He would jump, but he couldn't get out. There was no way of escape. And eventually, after they did this experiment for a while, the dog would feel the electricity and realize there was no way to escape. There's no ability to change, no ability to get out of this. So every time the electricity came on, they stood perfectly still and just waited for it to be over. Well, this was so conditioned into them that they were hopeless. They couldn't change. They couldn't do anything different. They were just overcome by fear and powerlessness or what he called hopelessness, they then took that same dog and put him back in the original cage that had the door open, turned on the voltage, and though he had a way of escape, he had been so conditioned to be hopeless, the electricity came on and boom, he just stood perfectly still. He wouldn't take the escape route next to him. So the, um, the doctor who was doing this experiment, or the animal abuse person, if you call him today, you know, um, They added a third part to the component, which is they put a dog into the cage who had not been conditioned. Electricity went on. The one conditioned dog just went into stasis. The other dog's like, he jumps right out. Like the other dog came out of stasis like, what was that all about? There is a way out. And he followed that dog out. But he wouldn't have done it if someone had not come into the cage and led him out. Jesus says in a world that has been conditioned to be hopeless against death, conditioned that you can't change, if your dad was an alcoholic, you'll be an alcoholic, if your mom had anger problems, you'll have anger problems, the generations, I'm just nature nurture, I'm just pre-programmed by my DNA. 
Jesus came into history and said, I defeated death and I want to show you a way out. I want to show you that you can change. Just because you've always been negative doesn't mean you have to be negative. Just because you've always struggled with lust doesn't mean you always have to struggle with lust. I have brought the power to change in your life. You can have a better marriage. You can have a better relationship with God. You can have a better relationship with your kids. I, am, I came into history to show you the way and to lead you out of whatever way you've entrapped yourself into, whatever patterns, whatever traditions, and especially the eternal cage of death itself. I came to show you a way out. So that's the gate. Which is why he's the ultimate hero as well. He's here and that hero offers you fearlessness. Because remember, everybody is scared of Hades. Everybody's terrified of Hades. In the Greek myth, in order to be a hero, Hercules and others, here's how you became a hero. You had to at some point go down to Hades, face him and live to tell about it. So Orpheus was a hero. You're a hero if you can make it to the underworld and back. Now, if you die, you can't get out. But if you're still alive and you make it down there and back, you're a hero. So keep that in mind. Anyone who goes to the underworld and back is a hero in the Greek world because they're so terrified of Hades. So much so, I'll show you this clip from uh, Clash of the Titans to give you a feel, obviously it's a movie, but a feel for how people felt about the gods and their myth and theology at the time. Let's watch Have you seen what's happening out there? Have you even bothered to look? We serve as an inspiration. Hundreds of our men have lost their lives. Yet we celebrate. You're provoking the gods and you act as if there will be no consequence. Well, what do you want? Should we be afraid? Should we be trembling and soiling ourselves in fear? The gods need us. They need our worship. What do we need of them? Look at my daughter. Don't. What could be more divine than her face? More beautiful than all the women of Greece. More beautiful than Aphrodite herself. The Olympians should envy her. We are the gods now. powers beyond your comprehension. Who are you? I am Hades. I love the fact that Hades is like the hunchback from Notre Dame, and whenever he says his name in that movie, he's like he has halitosis. Hades! <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but in that time, everyone was scared to death of Hades and offending the gods. And yet the gods, as you can see, weren't self-existent. They needed the people. And that's why they're really lousy gods. Besides, they struggle with anger and lust and all the things that you would want a god to help you with. They're worthless on. The second thing is that they weren't even self-existent. They're like, you know, so insecure they needed people. Any god who needs me has really got a problem. That's what I always say. So this idea of the, the, the Christian God and the Greek gods are totally different. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. So into this world, Jesus and his message is going to be presented in a way that is very striking, especially to the Greeks who had this idea that you're a hero if you can make it to the underworld and back. So here's what happens. In Corinthians, Paul's writing to describe the message of Jesus. And he says, let me tell you a mystery. You always wonder, what happens when you die? It doesn't need to be a mystery. We, we actually know somebody who went there, came back, and told us about it. So whatever you've heard about, whatever miss you've heard, we got the real story. We had a guy who visited the underworld, or visited death, Sheol it was called in Hebrew, and he's going to tell us what really happened. He says, let me tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For this corruptible will put on incorruption. Now, Paul's a lawyer, and he gets very verbose. Let me tell you what he's saying. Our bodies are falling apart. They're corruptible. Another way you could say it is your body's falling apart. As you get old, you age, you, you, you lose everything, right? Your hair grows out of places it shouldn't. It doesn't grow in places it should. You know, your bodies are corruptible. But in the next life, here's the promise of Christianity. And don't miss this. This is so radical that most people hear it. Well, you mean my, my spirit goes on? No. The Bible says that your corruptible body in the next life, will put on incorruption. He gives you a brand new, eternal body like Jesus had that can hug, that can have recreation, that can love, that can interact, that can eat. I did a funeral one time for a guy who was a golfer, and uh, a lot of his friends were skeptics. I said, listen, if you love golf, Christianity is one of the few religions that gives you a body to golf in the future. If nothing else, accept Jesus so you can golf for eternity. But I want you to know just how radical that idea is, that heaven is a real place, not a cloud, with a real body. And that's what Paul's saying here. Your corruptible body will get a brand new incorruptible one. Your mortal body that's falling apart will put on an immortal one. So when this corruptible, body's falling apart, has put on the incorruption, then this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Oh my goodness, this is what Jesus is saying. I didn't just go to the underworld like the heroes do and come back. I did far more than the heroes. I didn't just spot Hades and barely make it out. I went down to Hades, defeated him, defanged him, destroyed him, grabbed his keys and came back to talk about it. And I promise that what I did with my body and getting myself a new body, I will give to you if you trust me. I'll give you a new body when you die as well. Unbelievably powerful. And, and notice the phrase, swallowed up in victory. What happens when you swallow something? You get bigger, right? You ever seen a snake swallow something? The bigger that thing is, like you see a, a snake swallow a rat. It's like, that's a big old rat. What a snake, right? Oh my goodness, that snake, his jaw came undone. You have an appreciation for that snake because of how big that thing was he swallowed. Nobody could defeat or swallow Hades. He was the ultimate power. So if death could be swallowed up, if death could be defeated, you know what it said about the defeater? He got bigger. 
He swallowed and defeated the most undefeatable, unlockable, unbeatable power in the universe. And so the readers went, this is not just a hero, this is the hero. I remember my boss at my first job, he uh, loved having competitions. He was a businessman from the Shetland Islands in uh, Scotland. He was always looking for ways to compete. So one day we, uh, as a staff, went to Krabby Mondays at Red Lobster. And it was all-you-could-eat crab. If you ever studied their business model, it was a total disaster. They almost went bankrupt, and I personally feel like I contributed to that. (laughs) I love snow crab legs. Now, my parents couldn't afford it, but once a year. So when I was 14, they started taking me. It was a half hour to the closest Red Lobster. So we would once a year go to Red Lobster for my birthday, and I would eat snow crab. And I'm telling you, I became like the crab ninja, opening that thing, pulling the meat out. I love snow crab. So my uh, boss says, how about we have a contest to see who can eat the most crab? Now, I may have been 130 pounds at 21 or whatever I was, but I'm telling you, the one thing I can do is swallow a lot of snow crab. So they bring in my first two pounds. They bring in his first two pounds. And I immediately said, go ahead and get me two more. He's just starting to open this thing, and I'm like, all right, I'm done. He's like shocked. I can't believe you swallowed up all that snow crab. Next two pounds come in. Give me two more. I got up to eight pounds of snow crab I ate. Now keep in mind, most of it's shell. Oh my goodness, it was the most beautiful day of my life. And he is like, I can't keep up. Oh my goodness. This is a really competitive guy. He's like, how in the world did you get all of that meat into that little body? And that day I became a hero because I swallowed up something that he couldn't believe I could swallow up. And when the ultimate fear of your life can be swallowed death, it changes everything. You know why if you're a a soldier or a fireman or a police officer or you risk your life, you know why Christianity will help you? Because you don't have just one life to give. If you die, you can be resurrected. So all of a sudden you can give yourself to other people, even sacrificing your life, because you know the ultimate thing has been defeated. More than that, in regular life, if the fear of death is gone, of course the fear of failure can be gone. The fear of of losing can be gone. The fear of not being accepted can be gone. All the fears that control us can be dismantled if we understand that the ultimate fear is gone. He said, well, I struggle with being out of control. Well, guess what? You are out of control. And there's a God who is in control, and he can help you with that fear of being in control. He's the ultimate gate who gives us facts. He's the ultimate hero that gives us fearlessness. But lastly, he's the ultimate judge. And this, again, would have been shocking for the reader. Because if you were living in the Greek culture, keep in mind that like most religions today, what makes Christianity so distinct from every other religion and every other philosophy is all the other ones are a do-it-yourself plan. Follow the seven pillars of Islam, enlighten yourself through Buddhism, try and be a good person, try and help old ladies across the street, try and do too too many bad things. It's a do-it-yourself plan. Pay your own toll. The real message of the Bible, the gospel, is not a do-it-yourself plan. It's a done-for-you plan. And the problem with all other philosophies is that ultimately it's a pay-your-own-way. And you're in shackle, though. How do you know if you've done enough? Okay, I lusted after somebody. I'm going to put ten bucks in the offering plate. Okay, so I guess lusting after that woman, she's worth ten bucks, right? It's immediately offensive to think that you can somehow make up your good for your bad. You never know if you're going to go to heaven. It's just as much of a mystery as ever because I think I'm a good person. Well, unless I don't get what I want, then I get really selfish, right? How, how good is good enough? The Bible answers that question. 
Now, to understand that, you need to understand again what Plato said about what happened at the end of your life. Plato said it this way. He said, when, you, when the dead have come to the place where each is led by his genius, which is actually the word demon. So it's interesting that the Greeks believe that you got led to the underworld by a demon, which was your genius. So interesting uh, irony and difference in Christianity. First, you're judged and sentenced whether or not you've lived well and pious or not. So again, how big is this? It's just like you hear that all the time. I need to be a good person. Can anyone tell you what it means to live piously or be good? Have good intentions? I mean, you, you go to a prison today and you'll say, are you a good person? Well, yeah, I'm pretty good because I killed somebody, but the guy next to me killed 20 people. Right? You're always appealing to the lowest common denominator. We'll be really selfish, but we'll say, but I'm basically a good person, even though I lust and I lie and I cheat and I, 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 I'm unthankful and I'm critical and I'm unkind. I mean, okay, well, how do you define good then? Well, if you're a good, pious person, those who are found to have lived neither will, well nor ill go to the lake. So you're in the lake of sticks sort of floating around. That's the limbo. That's the purgatory. You've got to clean you up for a few centuries. Where they dwell and are purified. And if they have done any wrong, they are absolved by paying the penalty. So you've got to pay your own penalty for the wrongdoings. But those who appear to be incurable, uh-oh, you can be incurable, on account of the greatness of the wrongdoings, oh no, if you do really great wrongdoings, then what's that? Again, you don't know. You never know. But if you do really great wrongdoings, whatever those are, because they've committed many great deeds of sacrilege, uh-oh, sacrilege. What's a great deed of sacrilege? I don't know. All right, well, don't do it, whatever it is. And then keep going. Or, I love this line, wicked and abominable murders. Now, see, there's, there's nice murders, and there's righteous murders, and there's, uh, there's kind murders, but then there's those abominable murders. So what you want to do, if you want to avoid Tartarus, is avoid the wicked and abominable murders. Or any other such crimes. Oh, or, or any such abominable murders. Are cast by their fitting destiny into Tartarus, where they will never emerge. And here's my point again. You just never know. The idea that good people get to heaven and bad people go to hell, no one ever gives you a definition of what good is and what bad is. Jesus comes into this and says to the Greeks, once you made it past the dog, you stood before three judges, the three Greek judges, and they determined where you went. So for the Greeks, they knew who the judge was. It was these three people with Greek names I can't pronounce. Um, they were the judge. If you talk to a Hebrew who read the Bible, they say God is the judge. Jesus shows up and turns everything on its head because he says, no, I will be the judge. This is radical. Here's what he says. For the father judges no one, but had committed all judgment to the son, that all who honor the son will honor the father. And he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in me who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And look what he just said. How do you get into heaven? How do you get into the afterlife? How can you know for sure? Not maybe, not I hope, not wish. How can you know you have eternal life? He doesn't say you behave your way in. He says you believe your way in. Doesn't that turn everything on its head? All the religions and philosophies, even things that call themselves Christianity, say behave your way into heaven. Nonsense. You couldn't do it. I can't do it. Good luck if you want to try. He says you believe your way in. You believe that God, you're the judge, and if you gave me a fair trial, I would be in deep, deep trouble. 
deep trouble because my good deeds are not nearly as good as I think they are and my bad deeds are far worse than I could ever imagine. So I want to come before you and say, mercifully, I believe that when you died, you paid for my wrongdoing. When you died, you even paid for my good doing because it was making me self-righteous and judgmental and really annoying. So God, forgive me for that. And I want to get to heaven based on your merits, not my, my merits. I believe in you because you accept me. I'm not trying to prove I'm a good person. And this was so radical that the clash occurs because Jesus says, now you can have eternal life because I've forgiven you. And when you know I've forgiven you, past, present, and future, you can pass that forgiveness on. And that's why the message of Jesus is judge. You say, well, I don't believe in a judging God. Let me tell you why it would be helpful for you too. You know why many of us struggle with unforgiveness and bitterness and anger? It's because we don't have a God that judges, so we have to judge ourselves. We say we shouldn't judge. Meanwhile, we're keeping track of whatever our spouse has done. You didn't do this and you didn't do that. And you remember last week and you remember last year and you remember our first year of marriage. So the whole time we're saying, you know, well, I don't believe in judging. We're judging people all the time. Here's why Jesus as judge makes you free. I got angry a couple years ago. I was talking with a, I thought was a friend and we just had this big disagreement. And so I was trying to find a, a middle road. So I was sort of explaining my position. Well, here's where I'm coming from. Here's where you're coming from. What if we tried this? No. What if we tried this? No. What if we tried this? No. How about this? No. And I am just, I'm I'm staying up at night angry at how unreasonable they're being. I'm thinking, I have been over backwards and then been over backwards two more times. They're just, and I found myself having these anger fantasies is how I describe it. I'm so angry. And I decided to believe in Jesus He says that the best way to overcome anger is realize you've been forgiven by God. Great things beyond your imagination. So forgive other people, whatever they've done. He says the way you can sort of put that in motion is go pray for or bless your enemies. I do not feel like blessing anybody. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to believe that that's true. So I knew this person really wanted this particular gift. So I went down to the got this gift and a wrap. I'm going to do something for my enemies. I did get the gift and I got the gift. And I, get and I walked over to this person. I knew where they worked. And I said, hey, I want to let you know. I know you've been uh, excited about this and it's something you've been interested in. I want to give this to you. And I thought, this might be the moment of reconciliation. The person's humbled. The person, he says, thanks. Thanks. Okay. And that's actually the last time I talked to him. But I tell you what happened. Seriously, I tell you what happened. It did not go the way I thought. But two years later, I can trace my anger fantasies are gone. I can trace my bitterness is gone. I can trace my anger is gone to that moment. I, totally, something changed in me. I said, you know what? God, you've forgiven me, so I'm going to forgive others. You blessed me when I didn't deserve it. I'm going to bless others. And that was the moment I got free from bitterness. Not because I behaved, but because I believed what Jesus said and I put it into practice. And that belief... That he'd forgiven me of more than somebody else brought me freedom. And it can for you too. He is the judge that brings you freedom. He is the hero that brings you fearlessness. He's the gate that's based on facts. So my challenge to you, my encouragement to you is this. One gate locks you in, but this is the gate that will lead you out. Trust Christ for the facts. Trust him for freedom. Trust him for fearlessness. And you might say, well, Chad, how do I know that this myth, this story you're telling me, yeah, you say it's on facts of Jesus... I just don't think it's true. It's just a sort of another version. Maybe it's the Greek myth 2.0. I don't believe it. 
Well, there's lots of uh, books you can research this on. One of my favorite books I read this uh, over Christmas break is called Jesus on Trial. It's written by a skeptical trial lawyer who did not believe in Jesus or the Bible or God. He would say he was religious, but he realized the Bible was a myth. And he took his lawyer-esque skills and began to investigate the truth and to find out whether or not it was true. The book is powerful. One of my favorite stories he tells in his journey from skepticism to faith is a story of Lord Lylington and Gilbert West. They were both skeptics, and they traced all of Christianity down to two linchpins. If they could disprove two things, they could change everything. One of them decided to disprove the, the historic death and resurrection of Jesus. The other decided to disprove the conversion of Paul from an enemy of the faith to a, actually a proponent of the faith. So they spent about six months, a year, can't remember. They went off, both researching their topics. We're going to disprove Christianity, finally dismantle all this nonsense. They came back together after whatever it was, a time period, and said, all right, what'd you find? And they're both a little sheepish. Well, you go first. No, you go first. You go first. Lord Lylinson says, I, I, can't, I can't believe it. But the more I looked into the evidence, archaeological evidence, the Jewish historians, the Greek historians, the Roman historians, Jesus actually lived. He actually died. And the evidence for his resurrection is overwhelming. His buddy's like, I'm so glad because when I looked into the conversion of St. Paul, I found the same thing. And they both became followers of Jesus. Not because they had some emotional experience, because they looked at the facts and found out that Jesus did what he said he did, and he offered what he said he would. And my encouragement to you is God wants you to have the same thing, the freedom of forgiveness, the freedom from fear. The whole Bible describes that story, the story of what God did and why he came. Let's watch. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling of his final plan. History has been the canvas for the great painter of history to paint his story. From the opening canvas where God reveals a creation that is pure, clean, transparent, a world with no shame, with no guilt, with no suffering, to the rebellion where his masterpiece was mauled by the darkness of sin. God could have thrown the painting out, but he didn't. Instead, he carefully dipped his brush into the colors of differing human partners to paint his picture of redemption and deliverance. He chose differing personalities and colors. He dipped his brush into the yellow fear of Gideon and even Abram. He painted with a lot of brown deserts. He used green pastures. The hue of orange glow of peace of his creation. He used the multicolor coat of Joseph. He later used the red hot anger of Moses, but paints his life with the color of humility. He uses judges, priests, and prophets. His canvas includes kings and pagan empires and broken brushes. The painter will then, he will then enter the painting. He will take on the darkness. He will paint himself into the canvas. It is here we see the severity of human suffering. It is here we watch the colors swirl into the face of a love so powerful, a love so passionate that God chooses to restore his masterpiece by dying for it. Upon an old rugged cross, the painter dies. 
colors are dark. The story seems dim. The restoration seems hopeless. The joy has faded. What about the promises of renewal? Was no one worthy to restore God's once perfect masterpiece? Is there no artist, no painter with enough color, with enough power, with enough artistry to undo what's been done? But when all hope seems gone, when all the brushes have seemingly faded, it is then that the artist does his most spectacular work. A light is seen. A light pierces through the darkness and shines upon the newfound texture of his love. Instead of eliminating the pain and rebellion, he uses its colors to paint a newfound masterpiece. He took on death. He took on betrayal. He walked in our shoes. He faced our temptations. He lived among us. And now in his hands, is it a brush? Is it a new color? Yes, yes. The color of victory. The colors forged in the furnace of pain and agony. But it's not a brush in his hands. It's, it's keys. Keys. He holds in his hands the keys to death itself. He went into the dungeons of death to steal the keys. He painted himself into the worst of the worst moments and emotions of human suffering in a life's greatest fear. He took on the worst of spiritual forces. He overcame the worst the world could put upon him. He came out a conqueror, a king. He came forth from the grave as the victorious lamb. And now he reveals himself as the mighty lion. The lion of Judah has come to fix all that is broken once and for all. To restore the clarity of joy, the transparency of honesty. And place us all back in the painting that he envisioned. Only now, the colors are bolder. The story is more glorious. At the revelation of Jesus, we discover a God who uses the colors of history to invite men and women into His story. Fellow painters with Him, fellow artisans passing on the colors of forgiveness, the boldness of His truth, and painting with the brushes of joy. See, the story was not about you. It wasn't about me. The story was all about the painter, all about His canvas, all about His glory. How he got all of us who would receive him back on track. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you want to know a hero like that. This old hymn says, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. I'll give you a chance to respond to God and just ask for him to be your hero, to overcome whatever fears in your life. You bow your heads with me and just say something like this, God, I'm tired 
of being controlled by fear. And tell me what time of fear it is. Fear of death. Fear of failure. Fear of being a bad mom or a bad dad or not making your results. Say, God, I need your forgiveness. I can't pay the toll. But today I'm going to believe. Believe that you defeated death for me. I'm going to believe that your way of living is superior. I want to forgive the way you forgive. I want to love the way you love. And I want to serve the way you serve. I invite you into my life. And I give you the reins to take control. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us for Clash of the Titans. We're going to continue our series for several more weeks. Uh, If you came here for the first time today, we'd love to meet and greet you. Third door on your left is the hearth room. There's some folks who want to put a name to the face. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes out in the foyer. We'll see you all next week. Thanks again.